Well, a very warm welcome to this event, uh, the Sunday Forum. If you've uh, managed to get down from Eucharist upstairs, a, a dub doubly well done, because we did finish somewhat late. I know I can slip through various corridors that no one knows of, um, so if you've got here straight from Eucharist, a particular well done to you. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure today uh, to welcome Graham Tomlin. Uh, before that, I need to introduce myself. I'm Jonathan Corr, uh, Sixth Centre of St Paul's Cathedral, and it's, it is my distinct pleasure to be here. Today, Graham is going to be uh, speaking about his new book, Looking Through the Cross. And as some of you might know, Looking Through the Cross is the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for 2014. And it has the distinction of being commissioned by one archbishop and then very warmly endorsed by his successor. So I think a, a well-timed commission to cover two archbishops. Graham is a leading theologian and the author of several popular and academic books. I'm not sure there's a distinction between popular and academic. Um, I've found very popular academic books on my shelves. He is currently serving as Dean of St. Melitus College, which is the, the theological training ground for clergy and lay leaders in the Diocese of London. And he has previously worked as chaplain for Jesus College, Cambridge, and as a tutor at Wycliffe Hall. Dr. Tomlin has written extensively on the future of the church and the ways we can nurture spiritual well-being in modern society. And those books themselves are well worth a read for all of us who are concerned with where we're going as a church and how we minister to the world around us. In this book, he teaches us how to look at the world and ourselves through the lens of the cross. And as we prepare for Holy Week, we can use these insights to bring powerful and sustaining light of the cross into our everyday lives. So Graham will talk for about uh, 40 minutes or so. Then we'll have some time for questions and hopefully answers, and to buy a copy of the book if you would like to. So please do welcome him. Graham. Thank you, Jonathan, very much indeed. It's very good to be with you this morning, or this afternoon as it is now. And uh, thank you also for this um, uh, opportunity to speak about uh, this little book which as Jonathan says I've um, just written and which has been uh, the Archbishop's Lent book for 2014. Uh, I came across someone the other day who um, assumed that what happened when you wrote an Archbishop's Lent book was that the Archbishop of Canterbury dictated the book and they got someone to sort of write it down as he dictated it. So they sort of assumed that that's what I'd done. I'd sort of sat at the Archbishop's desk and just taken down the words as he's written it. And I had to explain, no, they're not, um, they're not the Archbishop's thoughts, they're, they're mine. Uh, the person looked rather disappointed at that moment, but um, I think bought the book anyway. And uh, the, uh, when it came out, it um, was actually uh, published back in, I think, November of, of last year. Um, uh, normally when books come out that I've, I've written, they don't make much of a, an impact, but I guess when something has the Archbishop of Canterbury's name on it, it has a little bit of an extra um, sort of selling power perhaps. And um, uh, when this came out with Archbishop Justin, of course, being a relatively new uh, Archbishop and everyone trying to work out what he was about and what he was trying to do, um, the fact that he'd written the preface to the book gained a little bit of interest. Um, there was a, an article in the Times that picked up uh, something he, he wrote in the, um, the, the, the preface of the book. 
and um, this is what he wrote. See, this is Justin's words, not mine. He says, um, 2,000 years later, the cross has lost much of its capacity to shock and to challenge. For those early Christians, it was a badge of shame. Today, it's more commonly seen as a symbol of beauty to hang around your neck. As a friend of mine used to say, you might as well hang a tiny golden gallows or an electric chair around your neck. Are we now living with a symbol emptied of power by time and fashion? Anyway, having written that, a little article in the Times came out um, saying, uh, Archbishop attacks fashion industry. <laughs> and uh, the article was basically going on about how this um, uh, preface was mounting an attack on the fashion industry at having evacuated the cross of its meaning. Um, a few days later, there was then another, another article in, in the, the Guardian basically saying um, Archbishop is a fool for attacking the, the fashion industry. It was basically written by someone within the fashion industry saying how that the Archbishop doesn't really understand the fashion industry at all. And um, it was one of those instances where the, uh, the, the media sort of feeds off itself because, of course, I don't think for a moment Archbishop Justin was trying to attack the fashion industry in what he was saying. He was simply trying to make a point about the cross and how it's seen today. Um, but when you think of the cross, it is one of the strangest things about Christianity, that the centrality of this symbol, the centrality of the cross. When you think uh, Judaism has the, the Star of David, uh, Islam has the Crescent, um, Christianity has a cross. And the cross is something that probably many of you today are, are wearing indeed around your, your neck or on your lapel. Uh, it stands on spires and church towers across the country and across the world. It stands on altars. Wherever you go to a church, you will probably find a picture of a cross there in most of them. And uh, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that, how odd that is as a symbol of Christianity. The early Christians could have chosen all kinds of different things we might have chosen a crib, a manger, as the symbol of Christianity. We might have chosen one of the miracles of Jesus, maybe of um, bread being multiplied. We might have chosen a, an empty tomb as the picture of, that symbolizes Christianity. You might have chosen a dove, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. But no, the one symbol that seems to come at the centre of the attention time and time again in churches and Christians across the world, that is the cross. And I suppose this book is trying to answer the question, uh, why is it that the cross is so central? It is, perhaps, one of the real unique things about Christianity. Again, other religions have aspects that parallel some things that we find within our own Christian faith. There are religions that have the idea of gods come to earth. Now, the Greek gods, in a different kind of way from the way we understand it as Christians, but there's a similar sort of idea, the idea that gods can come down to earth and walk upon um, the planet on which we live. There are religions that have the idea of gods dying and rising. Uh, the nature religions that see some divine pattern in the seasons uh, have that idea of God dying in the, in the winter and rising again uh, in the spring. 
But no other faith quite has this idea of God going to the utter extremes of existence to surrender himself to the hands of his creation to die a shameful death, which is what happens on the cross. Islam, as a, an example, has many similarities to Christian faith. Uh, Muslims and Christians both believe in one God, not many. We both have an emphasis upon obedience to the will of God. Uh, we both believe that God speaks to us uh, through prophets and so on. But the one point where it seems there's a significant note of difference is that Islam and the Quran cannot contemplate the idea even of a prophet dying on a cross. And so in that part of the Quran where it describes Jesus, conceived of course as a, as a prophet, uh, coming to, to die, um, in most interpretations of that little part of the Quran, it seems that uh, they, they understand Judas at the last minute was substituted for Jesus. And so in fact, the one who dies on the cross is actually Judas, not Jesus, because Islam cannot conceive of this idea that God would abandon any of his favored ones to die on a cross. But of course, Christians have always seen the cross differently. And perhaps the main reason why Christians view the cross differently is because of our belief in the resurrection. That the resurrection changed the early Christians' view of the cross. It changed the early Christians' view of Jesus. If God raised this man from the dead, he must be something special, or he must be someone special. Out of all the many countless figures crucified by the Romans in Palestine and across the Roman Empire at the time, there was only one person whom God raised from the dead, it was this man. Therefore, there must be something about him which is different. And so the resurrection changed the early Christians' view of Jesus, but it also changed their view of the cross. That the cross, this particular way in which Jesus died, was not just a tragic accident, but was something much more significant. Now, it seems to me that there are two ways in which we can perceive the cross. Two ways in which we can encounter it. And I want to look at those two ways just in the next half an hour or so, because they are at the heart of what this book tries to do. One is, well, the first of them is, is looking at the cross. Looking at the cross. Because central to the New Testament, as we've seen, is this idea that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, understood as the second person of the Trinity, God, taken on human flesh, this person dies on a cross. And that that death was in somehow, some way connected to human sin. When uh, St. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and tried to express uh, what is the heart of the, the, the faith that he taught them at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says uh, th that it was this, this is what I taught you when I came, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That the reason why Christ died was in some way connected 
to sin. That in some way the cross, this death of Jesus, has dealt once and for all with the root cause of misery and pain and suffering in the world. And that all of that misery and pain and suffering can somehow be traced back to sin. This deep, profound rebellion of the creation against the Creator. Now, of course, that understanding that St. Paul had has its background right in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has this sacrificial system built into it, which was enacted day after day after day in the temple in Jerusalem, where the idea was that, that sin, the sins that we commit against one another and against God, cannot be simply overlooked. They had to somehow be dealt with. Another book of Leviticus is one that goes into intense detail about the provision that the Old Testament saw as the way in which sin was dealt with, where the priest would make atonement for the sins of the people. And that happened again and again and again in the temple. Now, in the New Testament, of course, we get the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we find this extended meditation on the death of Christ in terms of Old Testament sacrifice. That just as the sacrifices were made day after day in the cross by the priest, Jesus Christ dying on a cross just about maybe 100, 150 yards away from the very place in the temple where the sacrifices were offered, that that death was in some way the sacrifice to end all sacrifices that he was both the priest and the victim, that he has sacrificed for sin once and for all. The perfect sacrifice for sin has been made. And therefore, as a result, there was no need for any further sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews talks of. But this idea that the cross deals with sin is perhaps a hard one for us to fathom. Most of us are not Jewish, we don't have that Old Testament temple sacrifice background. We sometimes read the book of Hebrews and it's hard to make much sense of it because it's not really the world in which we live. It's not the world that is our background. And we can struggle to imagine how your and, and my small acts of jealousy and dishonesty and selfishness, what have they to do with the death of this man in Jerusalem? dying at the hands of the Romans in around 33 AD. Well, perhaps there are two things we can say about this. The first is that small acts have large consequences. We're familiar with what's sometimes called the butterfly effect, which is a theory that says that very small actions can have very large consequences. Classic example, the flapping of the wings of a butterfly can set in chain a whole series of reactions that leads to a tornado elsewhere in the world. This idea that small actions can have large consequences. Incidentally, golfers know this particularly well. If you play golf, you realize that the tiniest change in your swing makes a big difference to where the ball ends up going. 
you can change the angle of impact of the club on the uh, on the ball you can change only by a small amount and it makes the difference in the ball flying straight and veering off into the woods or into the into the, the bushes and it's in this vein that the new testament talks about sin that our small actions as sin can have large consequences at the same time small things can hidden can reveal hidden motivations those tiny acts of disdain towards others or towards god can reveal something much deeper perhaps the biggest test of the human race was what we did when god came among us we often like to think that if god came among us if jesus christ were to walk the streets of 21st century london we would of course welcome him with open arms we would of course recognize him as who he truly is the question is would we be any different because when god walked among us we did not welcome him we crucified him and of course over the years we christians have tried to blame it on the jews we've tried to blame it on the romans we've tried to blame it on those benighted people back there who didn't understand what they were doing and of course we would do it differently but of course we can't blame it on anyone we are all guilty there is that line in the hymn that you may have sung ashamed i hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers so there's a sense in which the sin which the cross reveals the nature of human sin but it also reveals atonement atonement can perhaps be a difficult idea for us and maybe as always often the case it's the novelist it's the storytellers who give us an insight into the meaning of things one of the most powerful novels in recent years was of course made into a film is um, ian McEwan's novel which is called atonement you may have read the book it's the story of a young girl bryony tallis who mistakenly accuses her sister's boyfriend uh, of rape as a result of her accusation this man is sent to to jail uh, basically his life is ruined and uh, as the story proceeds it's the story of this young girl's realization of what she has done that this false accusation has led to the destruction of someone's life their relationship it's spoilt the happiness of her sister her family this man and everything else and somehow it's the story of her need to atone for what she has done her need to somehow do something to put it right that is not enough just to leave it behind ignore it something has to be done so that she can find forgiveness and there's a moment at the end of the story where uh, it's described like this it says all she wanted to do was work and then bathe and then sleep until it was time to work again but it was all useless she knew she's working as a nurse during the second world war at the time and it says whatever skivvying or humble nursing she did and however well or hard she did it she would never undo the damage she was unforgivable 
And what that novel proclaims to us and reminds us of is, is the deep sense we have of the need that when something very wrong has happened, atonement needs to be made. And that if there is a wound at the heart of creation that is somehow connected with our rejection of our Creator, we cannot just ignore that. And that even God cannot just ignore that. Something has to be done to make it right. Atonement has to be made. And so the reason why the cross is the symbol of Christianity is this conviction that in this death, the wound of creation brought about by human sin has been atoned for. That we, the ones who caused it, there is a sense in which we have paid for our sins. One of the amazing things in this divine symmetry of the cross that we find in the New Testament is this emphasis upon Jesus Christ dying, not just as the divine Son of God, but as one of us, the man Christ Jesus. And so as we, and sometimes you become aware, don't you? We all become aware of of our own self-centeredness. We become aware of our own sinfulness. And we somehow, like Brian E. Tallis, wish that there was some way in which we could atone for our sins. The news of the cross is that, in a sense, we have. That in Jesus Christ, in the man Christ Jesus, the human race has atoned for its sin. And there is, therefore, as St. Paul calls it, peace through his blood. And so because of Good Friday, we now live in a world where atonement has been made. We live in a world that has been forgiven. So there's the first way of looking and perceiving the cross. This looking at the cross. But I want to suggest even more than that. There is this other action of looking through the cross. Icons are sometimes used in the Anglican tradition, most commonly used, of course, in Eastern Orthodoxy. And of course, the point of icons is not that you pray to an icon, but you pray through an icon. The idea of an icon is that it's kind of like a window into God. Icons are always two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. If you go to an Orthodox church, you will not find a statue. Three-dimensional things are things you look at. Two-dimensional things are things you look through. I quite like the um, picture that the uh, uh, publishers brought at the front front of the book, which is a picture of a stained glass window, because, of course, a stained glass window is the same thing. The stained glass window is something you look through rather than just at. And it colours and shapes what you look at through it, because it has a distinct shape to it. And so what this book tries to do is to say, well... Yes, we live in a world which has been forgiven, where atonement has been made for sin. We live in a world which has, in one sense, been healed. But also we need to look not just at the cross, but through the cross. We need to look at our world, at our experience, at ourselves, at God, through the lens of this act of God, this cross. 
Now what the book does is to look at a number of different themes. It looks at wisdom, evil, power, identity, suffering, ambition, failure, reconciliation, life, and look, tries to look at what those things look like in the light of the cross. But I will just take two of those just to give you a little taste of what it says. The first is suffering. What does human suffering look like through the lens of the cross? Now, of course, the problem of suffering is one of the chief causes of atheism in our world. There are many people who are atheists precisely because they have either seen someone else suffer or they've experienced themselves and they say, well, I cannot believe in a God who allows that to happen. There are many Christians who have lost their faith because they encountered suffering and they again concluded, well, I, I cannot believe in a God who allows that to happen. And at first sight, of course, the cross confounds the problem rather than solving it. In one sense, you could say that the cross is one of the strongest arguments for atheism you could ever find, much better than anything that Richard Dawkins can come up with. Because here is the best man who ever lived, this person who obeyed the Father's law at every moment, this person who was full of love and grace and kindness, who brought life and miracle and healing to so many. And at his moment of utter need, where he's arrested, tried, accused falsely, hung on a cross, he cries out for help and nothing happens. God doesn't intervene. If anyone deserved deliverance, it was Jesus. And yet, heaven is silent. It's a pretty good argument for atheism. Surely if there was a God, he would have stepped in and stopped the worst happening. And sometimes atheists, I think, think of us Christians as people who are really just a little bit naive, that we think the world is a rather nice place and therefore there must be a rather nice God who made it. And we haven't really looked or been aware of the depth of suffering. And if we were aware of the depth of suffering, of course, we'd realise that God either wasn't very nice or that he didn't exist at all. And yet, of course, at the very heart of Christian faith, we find this symbol of intense suffering. Christians are not people who avoid suffering because there is a picture of it right at the very heart of our faith. So what does the cross tell us about suffering? Well, I suggest it gives us two insights, two quite profound insights into human suffering. And the first is that God enters into human suffering. He doesn't just observe it. He doesn't just sympathize with it. He doesn't just express his love for us in it. But he enters into the very heart of it. That that very person hanging on a cross is not just another poor victim, another statistic in the roll call of human misery, but it is God. And it's precisely because of that, because of that Christian conviction that this man hanging on the cross is not just a prophet, but he is God himself. 
in human flesh. Though we can say that God knows what it is to suffer in the most extreme of ways. And so that when you and I suffer, whatever it is, God has been there before us. That God knows what it is to experience physical pain. God knows what it is to experience abandonment by his friends and family. God knows what it is to face abuse. God knows what it feels like to be accused falsely and convicted. God knows what it feels like to feel despair. And in this strange paradoxical way, God knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God. Again, this is one of the unique things about Christian faith, that God enters into human suffering. He suffers both as our victim, but also as our brother. And here is this deep comfort that Christian faith gives us, that whatever suffering we go through, God is not a stranger to it. And the only reason we can say that is because of the cross. But the second thing that Christian faith says about suffering and what the cross says about suffering is that God overcomes our suffering. Now when the early Christians spoke about this idea of God hanging on a cross they were quite careful to, 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 to describe what they were saying. They said that God suffered in the human nature of his son. But at the same time they said that God did not suffer in Christ's divine nature. And they went even further to say that the Father does not suffer. So God suffers in the human nature of his Son. Now that might seem a kind of slightly nice distinction to be be making. Why did they say that? Why did they make this distinction and say that that God suffers in, in Christ's human nature, but not in his divine nature? And I think the reason is this. Because if they were to say that all of God suffers... The suffering, as it were, overtakes all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If suffering enters into every single part of God, and if God is eternal, then suffering becomes eternal. And if suffering becomes eternal, there's no hope of it ever going away. And it was important for the early Christians to say that there is a part of God that remains untouched by suffering. That the Father does not suffer. He's incapable of suffering. That the divine nature of Christ is incapable of suffering. But in his human nature, he is capable of suffering. And so we can say that God tastes death for us, but he is not overcome by death. God tastes suffering, but he is not overcome by it. That death and suffering will try to tie God down, but they are not strong enough to hold him. And therefore, what the cross tells us is that suffering is real. It's not an illusion, but it's temporary. And that ultimately, life and love are stronger than death. And so the Christian answer to the problem of suffering is not primarily a philosophical argument. There are philosophical arguments to be made about the nature of suffering, the nature of evil, and Christian faith has its, um, has its ways of doing that. But, but, pr- but primarily, the Christian answer to the problem of suffering is not an argument. 
Because even if you explain away suffering and evil and explain where it comes from, you still have to deal with it. And so the Christian answer to suffering is this assurance that God is with us in that suffering, which we can only say because of the cross. But also this assurance that it's temporary, that God has the final word, that life wins, that love wins. It's why, of course, the resurrection makes utter sense. And when you look back on it, in the light of knowing who it was who died on the cross, of course Jesus would be resurrected. If he is the divine Son of God, suffering and death cannot overcome him. They will try to hold him, but they will not be able to do it. Of course, it was a huge surprise at the time. No one was expecting it. But looking back, you think, of course, if you try to kill God, you won't be able to do it. He might choose to undergo death, to enter into it, but you won't ultimately tie him down. So the cross transforms our view of human suffering. It tells us that it is real. It doesn't go down the line of some religious views that says that suffering is an illusion. Suffering is something which is just a state of mind. No, it is real. It is genuine. It is harsh. It is painful. But it is temporary. And there is hope of a world beyond suffering. But then, secondly and lastly, the cross, when we look through it, changes not just our view of suffering, but it changes our view of ourselves. One of the um, uh, people who meditated on the cross most profoundly within the New Testament was, of course, Paul. And one of the things he says in the book of Galatians is this remarkable phrase where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I no longer live on my own. I live it through Jesus Christ. That's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as he reflects on the significance of the cross, and he, says, he looks at himself, as he looks through the cross at himself, he, he, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, that somehow my old self has died and a new one has been born. That somehow the cross brings about a new identity for Christians. That those whose faith in, is in Christ are new people. Not just that they should be new people, but they are new people. Now this, of course, is symbolized in baptism. Baptism, this entry point into the Christian life. When a child is baptised, they are given a new name. Of course, they inherit their family name, their surname. But they're given a new, distinct name, a name that is distinct to themselves. They are christened, we sometimes say. And baptism is both an entry into Christian faith, but it's also a kind of naming ceremony. So you're given a name, Matthew, Jane, Graham. You're given a, a distinct name that is different from other people in your family, different from other people. It's your name, it's your Christian name, as opposed to your surname. 
in many parts of the world where uh, people are become Christians out of one faith into Christian faith, for example, in, uh, in Muslim countries very often, uh, people will take on an, a new Christian name. St. Paul, of course, had the same thing. He was brought up as Saul. When he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, when Ananias comes to him and uh, heals the temporary blindness that he has, and when he's baptized, he takes on this new name of Paul, Paulos. So here's this, this idea that in baptism, we are given a new name, a new identity. Now that question of identity is a really live issue for us. It's one of the biggest problems in our world today. You could say that many of the conflicts in our world come from this question of identity, of deeply held ethnic, tribal, religious identities that make enemies across the world, whether in Iraq, in the Middle East, in Crimea. You can think of almost any conflict around the world. A lot of it's based around identity, national, ethnic, tribal identity. We have a new phenomenon in our culture here in the West of, of identity theft. That happens when someone gets hold of your credit card number, your passport, your login details to your email accounts, and they can become you. They can take your identity and they can steal your identity. So identity is a really big issue within our modern world. Occasionally we hear of a maybe a witness to a crime or a juvenile, juvenile offender who is uh, given a new identity. They're given a new name, a new location, a new role, um, because their old one has become compromised. Either because they're a juvenile offender and when they, they, they come out of that, um, out, out of prison, they need a new, new identity because their old identity has been tarnished, as it were, or because they've seen something which is going to bring them into danger uh, by people who know who they are. And so people are given a, a new identity. And of course, what those people have to do, witnesses to crimes or juvenile offenders, is, is to start living out of this new identity as if they really are this new person not the old person that they one day once were. Now that, I suggest, is a, is a picture of what happens in baptism. And it's a picture of what St. Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That when he became a follower of Christ, he was indeed crucified with Christ. The old Saul died. That old person the academic, from an important family within Judaism, proud of his ancestry, full of animosity towards Gentiles and non-Jews. That person died. In baptism, he was buried. And someone new rose again, that is in part continuous with the old person, but is in many ways new. A new person rises from the tomb, as it were. Someone who is forgiven, free, oriented now towards the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul puts it. And it's significant, of course, that when St. Paul writes about baptism, he writes about it as a baptism into the death of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, we are baptized into his death, buried with him through baptism into death, so that we may lead a new life. So the cross of Jesus creates new people with a new identity. Where our 
old selves die and our new selves begin to emerge. And the invitation of Christian life, seen through the lens of the cross, is to start to live out of that new Christian identity, as if you really are that new person. Now, of course, that's quite hard to do. It's very hard to live with two identities. It's often difficult. There was an article I read a number of years ago um, by a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and he was describing this um, phenomenon of, uh, of um, uh, witnesses or juvenile offenders who, who are given a new identity and have to have, to have a new name and a, and a new identity that they, they live out of. And he was describing how difficult that is for people, that such people often find this profound conflict within themselves. They feel themselves to be, you know, am I the old person or am I the new? And in this article he wrote this, he said, double lives are a burden for people. Juggling two identities is stressful and the secrecy takes its toll. People are not necessarily well equipped to do this sort of thing. It's not their natural state. It's often very hard to live with two identities, the old person and the new. And yet, this is the picture Paul gives us of the Christian. That if we are baptised Christians, we are new people if you like, with new names. And we have to learn to live out of that new identity, not the old one. That our identities are found not so much by looking within to find my true self, but looking without to Christ. The old self has died in baptism. The new self is being born, emerging every day as we grow in likeness to Christ. There's George MacDonald, who was, um, of course, one of the people who influenced C.S. Lewis a great deal uh, in becoming a Christian, once wrote this. There is no forgetting of ourselves, but in the finding of our deeper, our true self. God's idea of us when he devised us, the Christ in us. Nothing but that self can displace the false, greedy, whining self of which most of us are so fond and proud. So there is the Christian life viewed through the lens of the cross. A life of an old self dying and a new one being born. A reoriented self. And so I would suggest as we come towards Passion Tide here in Lent, today is Passion Sunday, next week Palm Sunday, and then we, of course we go into Holy Week, that the cross that we, are, we look at, especially on Good Friday, changes everything. It changes the way we look at our sufferings. It even changes the way we look at ourselves. That we live in a world where the Son of God once hung on a cross. A world which has been reconciled. A world where sin has been atoned for. Therefore, the whole world looks different through the lens of the cross. And that the invitation of Good Friday to us is to look at the world in the light of that cross. And that world looks very different.